It's bad ink jam, but not as we know it. This is bad. Welcome to the Bashcast, brought to you by BookieBashing.net, betting at 100.1 and above. This is Bashcast episode number 161 equals Poisson dot distribution bracket X comma mean. It is 9 minutes to 3 p.m. on Friday the 14th of August 2020. Coming up in this afternoon's Bashcast, we talk Poisson distributions in the correct score market. Um, winners... No longer welcome at GG Poker for the World Series of Poker Series. And after the break, we're joined by Pete from the Smart Betting Club. All of that and more coming up in this afternoon's Bashcast. It's damn hot. And there were storms last night. I was traveling down the M6 with my two kids at like 8.30 p.m. Massive storm on the um, on the M5, it was. There was a crash right in front of us, so we had to stop. And uh, Atalanta went 1-0 up at that point. And a police officer had... Well, we were literally right at the front, just the last cars before the accident. The police officer came over told us to turn our engines off. So when my engine was off, I grabbed my phone, I put a little bet on Atalanta because it just seemed like they they, they were quite, they were 1.9, it seemed like a big price considering they were having possession and PSG had drifted in the afternoon. Policeman came back over and said, despite the fact that we were stopped on the motorway with engines off, I wasn't to use my mobile phone, so he told me to put it away. And the point is, I'd put a large bet on Atalanta with the intention of maybe trading out a little bit at half-time. Now I couldn't do that. So I was like, okay, well, this is out of my control. <laughs> we'll just have to see what happens. As it transpired, by the time I got home, that bet was 1.9. I'd backed it. It was down in the 1.3s in the 88th minute. And here we are in Champions League without two legs. So it goes to extra time and then penalties. PSG did equalise in the 88th minute and then won the game in the 91st minute. I ended up winning zero because I traded out my back um, because at no point was I confident with PSG hammering down the door. It just seemed like... Well, I was always going into this to trade just to play around, but it just seemed like the price for... The markets kind of knew that PSG had such a chance there. I mean, I, I don't know what... 
um, PSG traded that at the highest price. But this is a lot more fun, isn't it? This is a lot more fun having um, extra time and penalties and one-legged affairs rather than the two-legged affairs, I think, personally. So I was having a look at tonight's game, which is um, the RB Leipzig. Reason Bolin, I think, Leipzig and Atletico Madrid. Um, and I think a few bookmakers have the chances of this going into penalties a little bit overpriced. And I've thought that on a few games so far. So to try and get the penalties price, the equation is, what is the draw in 90 minutes multiplied by what is the draw in extra time. Now the draw in 90 minutes is a really easy one. We know it's 3.25 in the exchange. Right, that's a really easy one. It's a massively liquid exchange market with uh, over a million pounds matched in it. So we can we can shelve that part of the equation and just sort of benchmark it against the exchange. What is the price of a draw at in extra time? That's a little bit harder. Um, there's a number of ways that we can do it. One methodology is to um, have a look at the bookmakers' prices on odds checker and then apply a markup. But my theory here is that the bookmakers have overpriced this to begin with. So using their price and then applying a markup kind of um, misses the point that I think that the edge is in the fact that of the price anyway um the having a look at this market just now um sky better priced up 11 atletico madrid and 11 rb leipzig with no markup that would be 5.5 the um if you add together all the different options in the market we get a markup of about 1.1 there so they're offering the equivalent of five to one and um, boil sports are offering a little bit less um, if you have a look at the exchange, it's the RB Leipzig penalties is 12.5 to back, 15 to lay, with only £145 traded on it. It's very difficult to assign any um, confidence into a calculation using that. I mean, um, the, the, the traded prices include 12, 27.5 uh, and 12.5. Um, God knows what's going on there, but it's difficult to come up with anything. But if you go for last price matched, which is in between the back and the lay, for both Atletico penalties and RB Leipzig penalties, you get 12.5 and 11.5, which together in an ore calculator, I shouldn't need this, but it's hot, it's damn hot, and I can't think straight. Yeah, it's 6.0. Again, I still think that's a little bit big. So my preferred way of coming up with this is um, work out the XG yourself for both teams and then build yourself a correct score market for extra time. Now let, let's not use the exchange. Let's not use bookmakers' prices, but let's just do the donkey work ourselves. right? So the, the only difficult bit here is how do you come up with XG for extra time you see we're pretty confident we know what xg for the game is we're pretty confident we know what half is second half zero to 30 30 to 60 60 to 90 all of that information we've spent a lot of time drilling down and it's available freely on the daily goals page on bookie bashing but what about 90 to 120 
not every extra time is the same. Some extra times, um, you know, if uh, if one team's down to two, 10 players, that will affect it. If the underdog has come back into the game at the end of the match, that'll affect it. If, uh, if it's been highly energetic, if um, sometimes you get to 115 minutes and it's just obvious that they want to play out the draw, all these different factors come into it, but you can't know any of that now. We can only deal with the information that we have just now. And to me, it doesn't seem like 60 to 90 is representative uh, in the same way, because, well, for starters, you don't get as much extra time at the end of injury time at the end of extra time as you do in the second half of matches so 60 to 90 would probably be a bit high 0 to 30 would be a bit low 30 to 60 seems about right but what I've done is I've taken the average of 30 to 60 in a match and 60 to 90 um, and I've come up with some XGs for both RB Leipzig and Atletico Madrid based on that and knowing their XGs we can then just create uh, it's really easy, go on Excel um and create a, a correct score market uh, just using equals Poisson dot dist uh, and the XG that you have is the mean and the over zero for the home multiplied by the over zero for the away. There's your nil nil. You can do one nil, two nil, three nil, four nil. How many do you want to do? I went up to five five. Um, although the odds of it being five five in um um. Extra time I make is about 8 billion to 1, so perhaps I didn't need to go that far. But putting all of that together, that equals for me uh, 1.82 if you add up the probabilities of 0, 0, 1, 1, 2, 2, 3, 3, 4, 4, and the 8 billion to 1 of 5, 5 in extra time. Uh, so I've got 1.82 for the draw in extra time. I've got 3.25 for the full time draw from the exchanges. I get 5.915. Okay, it's not the biggest value bet in the entire world when the bookmakers are pressed up at 5 to 1. But um, William Hill went 5 to 1 on the GSOs. That could easily be busted. And this is just kind of like somebody had mentioned, well, um, that that price can't be right because the bookmakers um, have got a slightly higher price. Uh, and sort of my retort was, well, there's no right or wrong here. There are just different methodologies and different variants of opinions of what the XG would be in extra time. And this is mine. And perhaps the bookmaker is more accurate and perhaps the bookmaker is less accurate. It's definitely a quiet market, this, the, the sort of who will win in extra time and um, who will win in penalties and things like that. It's a small market and so uh, we can have a stab at it and have a guess. Um, and so uh, creating these correct score markets is quite a lot of fun as well because that's sort of the basis of if you want to have a... Um, a stab at win both halves. Um, I was saying the other week I was struggling slightly with the calculation based on a regression analysis on win odds. But uh, you can create a correct score market up to 9-9 on full time if you've got the XG um, for both teams. That's the tricky bit, getting the XG for both teams. Um, um, if you can nail that with some degree of accuracy, then... The world definitely becomes your oyster in terms of benchmarking 
any of these calculations from the bookmakers because you know if you own the correct score market um if you're um if you have confidence in it then um you know win both halves is yours match odds btts you stop being reliant on the exchange you stop being reliant on bookmaker top prices um if you want to do win both halves to nil and over 7.5 goals in the match any of these i mean um, you have trust in your XG in your development of the correct score markets, then um, um, it does sort of open up this world of opportunity. And uh, winners can be even more winning winners because most of the time, a lot of the time, the only thing that is holding us back from volume is some of the difficulty that is involved in um, these calculations. So let's just fix that. That's the plan. Anyway, talk about winners... Um, uh, how are you doing in the World Series of Poker? I am zero for zero events played, which is officially a 100% record. So I'm just waiting for my call up to the Poker Hall of Fame right now. Whilst I wait for that, um, the World Series does continue on GG Poker Network. And my days, if you thought that getting money out of a sports book when you're a winning player is difficult. I mean, I see all these people moaning about sports books and they ban winning players and you get restricted. And a lot of people, a lot of times it's not fair, especially palping bets that, you know, you're placing them in legitimate good faith. It's not like you've gone and searched out bad odds, but um, the bookmakers just decided, no, you're not getting those odds or you're not even getting paid out at all. It really sucks. Um, so it certainly sucks getting restricted as a winner from the bookmakers. Generally hasn't happened too much um, with the bigger poker sites. Um, if you, um, In fact, you know, over at PokerStars, um, back in the old full tilt, they would, they would hire the big name poker professional celebrities, the winners, um, because... The difference between betting on poker and betting on sports betting is that you can promote poker as a sport where someone can have an edge, an angle and can win because it's player on player. And as a site, if you forget about the ecology and the ecosystem, it's all just about collecting rake. It's a lot more complicated than that. But um, really, that, that's where your revenue comes from. It comes from rake. Whereas with the bookmaker, it's player on company. Uh, and therefore the company goes, well, this doesn't have to be an equal game. Uh, and I don't blame them. I would do the same thing if I was there. At GG Poker, the um, the head, Jean-Christophe Antoine, has come out. And you can go and see this. This is online. It says at the site, why should people play on GG Network? Uh, and Jean-Christophe Antoine says, if you were planning to make a living out of poker, GG Network is not the place to be. It does not mean you won't be able to make it, but nothing will be done on our side to facilitate this. Our goal is to make it fun for everyone, nothing else. However, if you've got a regular job and you want to enjoy a night in after your hard work, I can guarantee you that you will have a great time with us. Online poker turned 20 last year, and for more than 15 years, the focus of the poker companies revolved around high-volume players. It's only been five years. It can be seen as a coincidence that we were founded in 2014. The operators started to think about ecology logically after seeing the dire consequences of their past behavior. We believe that poker is a form of entertainment not a job we focus on the fun of it 
Winning and losing are just parts of entertainment, not the purposes of poker for us. I kind of, I mean, I sort of get where he's coming from. Um, I've cer- I've certainly seen in the past um, activities around advantage play being promoted as a job. It's not a job. I honestly, I don't, I do this as a source of income. Um, I'm not particularly proud that it, at this moment in time it's my only source of income. Uh, at the back of my head, I use the excuse that I've got two small children bef- who are, younger than school age and being in this position allows me to be at home and spend time with them rather than going out and slaving away stacking shelves down at tesco's but um i have seen promoted around elsewhere that um you know do you want to make a full-time living out of sports trading do you want to make a full-time living out of match betting do you want to make a full-time living out of poker well that's all fine but what are you contributing to the world very little uh, um, you sit down, you go out for dinner, you sit down with your pals, you sit down with the doctor friend and the, the the lady that works for a charity and the nurse and the lawyer that helps out the baby seals in Africa. And then you suddenly realise that, what do you do? Oh, I, I bet on Atletico Madrid to score and to win the match and there'd be over 2.5 goals. All of a sudden it's like, well, that's kind of pointless. It's like when you go to your grave, that lasting impression that is going to go in the encyclopedia of the world is not going to be a particularly big and notable chapter for you. And it's fair enough. It's not that rewarding. So um, from the operator's point of view, um, um, it's a confusing message telling winners that they cannot come and be winners on your poker site. There are the bits about the ecology because, you know, if too many winners come along and just take all the recreational money, well, where does the money come from? If only, if, if you're only getting net withdrawal players on your site and you've got no net deposit players, then that kind of doesn't work. I mean, somebody has to deposit some money at some point. But GG Poker go as far as saying that these are the list of offences that you can commit and your account balance can be forfeited. That is, ecology, predatory behaviour, collusion, bum hunting, chip dumping, the use of artificial intelligence, third-party tools, multi-accounting, the use of proxies, the use of VPNs, rat-holing, circumvention, offensive chat, offensive player profile, residential country, privacy policy, actions for breach, account sharing, ghosting, and last but definitely not least, miscellaneous. That's right, you can have your whole account balance um, forfeited for miscellaneous. So, poker professional Tobias Duthweller deposited €50,000 into GG Poker um, and played some uh, cash games, won €188,000, went to withdraw and found that he couldn't. So if you've ever had a £150 withdrawal from a bookmaker denied, have a little bit of sympathy for this German kid. And um, what had happened was that Gigi Poker, in another skin, in another form, back in 2015, had turned to Tobias and said, you're a winning player, you're not good for the ecology of our poker room you are just taking money out and not giving any that much to us and so they banned him fair enough or not fair enough you might argue but then gg poker turn into the skin 
of Gigi Poker. The player probably should have done his due diligence by checking the history of Gigi Poker, but that gets complicated. I mean, if you're banned from a casino and you sign up to a new casino, sometimes like Nectar and you can tell that they're literally using the same skin. If you're bonus barred there, then you shouldn't really be, you're, you are risking some money by signing up and depositing. But the onus still comes on the bookmaker that if you sign up, um, verification really needs to be done on sign up as much as a pain it is to first sign up then do verification and then be able to deposit at least it removes this element where once they've verified you if after that they find a problem anything that you've won between verification and the second time where you go to withdraw and they find a problem that is all all of that risk should be carried by the operator and if they fail through missing you through the verification program process or get something wrong tough cookies at that point they can pay out and ban you but anything between the verification where the the user the player believes that everything is kosher uh, and then plays on the site or plays on the casino or whatever, and then goes to withdraw, even if a problem is found at that point, unless it's a massive problem like cheating or whatever, you've got to allow it. If it's a stupid problem like you banned him in a previous skin, so he's now not getting his money even though you verified him for a few weeks or whatever, give dead men his money. All right, guys. Uh, look, that's going to be enough for a short first half. After the break, we've got... Pete from SPC on the Bashcast for a chat. You are listening to the Bashcast and it's brought to you by BookieBashing.net.
That was Need You Now by Howling, the Adriatic remix, released 11th of July, 2020. And so this week on the Bashcast, we welcome Pete from Smart Betting Club. Um, Hi, Pete. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Yeah, no worries. So um, you have been in this game for quite a long time. Can you give me just a little bit of a a sort of history of how you got started and um, the journey to where you are just now? Yeah, so um, I'm sure we'll get onto the service I run, but that's focused on betting tipsters. And uh, in the early 2000s, that was an interest level of mine, interest of mine. I was at an age where, you know, the internet betting age, I suppose, was kicking off and uh, just coincided at the time. I had lots of spare time and interest in, betting interest in sports and uh, that flowed into you know exploring the tipster world with my you know then business and betting partner at the time and um yeah so we're doing quite well off, off the back of some of these uh tipsters that we're following we didn't have the issues that people have these days in terms of getting on and I'll pro- we'll probably get onto that as well and um it just made sense to kind of there was there was very little out there that was you know focused on this area in terms of reviews and analysis and and you know, putting forward the good quality services that um, that exist, and doing quite well from our betting. And just you know, we put two and two together and decided to build a service, and that's how Smart Betting Club evolved. And um, but so yeah, that's back in 2006 we launched it. So you know, there's there's a lot of, like say yeah, I have been around for for a long time now, and I've uh, been betting for a long time, seen lots of changes over that over that period. Um, but in terms of getting started, I think, yeah, it just, I was at that age where I had time, I had a bit of spare cash and I had uh, interest levels in, in sport and betting was really taking off for the internet. So, yeah, I, I guess, you know, if, if you look at certain people like uh, Bill Gates um, and, uh, you know, he was just at that sweet spot at that time and his age when, you know, the personal computer was, was developing and taking off and he had the time and energy. He wasn't laden with a family or a mortgage and this kind of thing. So he could take a few risks. So I, I think that, that's just at the right time. And you know, I find a lot of people of a similar age profile as themselves these days who you know got involved in betting in their twenties and they're, they're still involved to this day. So 2006 around about the, the smartphone revolution the, um, when the betting landscape really changed quite a lot in a small period of time around then, didn't it? Yes, it did, and I guess as well, the, like the loosening of the regulations in, in the United Kingdom in terms of betting has certainly helped. You know, the prevalence of betting shops that we now see in in our high streets and uh, internet adverts and, uh, and sorry, TV adverts for, for betting and bookmakers. Um, so it all kind of combined to create this perfect storm where betting became such a big industry. This is one thing I don't understand about 2020: how um, betting shops on the high street and the uh, ease of use of smartphones coexist in the same marketplace because the only people that should be walking into a shop are either people that don't understand how to use a smartphone, which is a very small market uh, sort of um, part of the Venn diagram of betters, or people who are restricted online, which, you know, the betting shops don't want. So um, it feels like we're sort of... The smartphone revolution came around in 2005, 2006, and that really um, margins got slashed, and um, um, there was a lot of competition with the prices. But we're still having a little bit of the 
um, pre-smartphone revolution with the old-style bookmaking around us just now? Yeah, it's strange how the two kind of continue to exist like that. You know, I, you probably spend a lot more time in betting shops than I do. And I think from people who are members of Bucky bashing the same. Uh, but yes, my understanding is if you're going in and, you know, someone of, a, of an age or you know, level of expertise, they probably think uh, this, this person, why aren't they betting on their phone? <laughs> it's suspicious. They want £200 on this golfer or this horse. Um, you know, so yeah, it's... Uh, it's strange how the two coexist. You know, I guess the the demographics of people in a betting shop, like I say, is normally those people that don't use phones, or maybe they go in for some kind of community element um, to watch the races themselves, to get out from to get out of the house. Um, so yeah, it's um, you know, and, and if you're looking, you're going to the US market, and you've got this really weird situation where you've effectively got you know 50 odd states, and you've got regulations, different regulations for each one needs to be treated as it as a, effectively its own country uh, and you've got situations where in the US where people can only bet physically they have to go into a casino to place the bet but yeah everyone's got a smartphone and they're yeah. in the middle of a pandemic where they should you know, they should be encouraged to kind of stay home so yeah it's a strange situation I've re- I read today that um, people in Illinois cannot bet on the uh, the Wyndham Championship the PGA Championship this week um, because of a, a specific rule in Illinois that um, f- um, to maintain integrity in betting and sport events, the bookmaker has to ensure that the people playing in the event um, earn more money from the event than their expenses would cost to cover it. And the 65th place finisher in the Wyndham Championship takes home $14,000. So it's then up to William Hill to ascertain is $14,000 enough to pay for a caddy for flights and things like that. And that's just impossible. And that's why people in Illinois cannot bet on the tournament. And it it, it fascinates me how the American market works like that and uh, is so fragmented and fractured. Indeed, it's one of those strange laws that I think we see across America as it starts to open up to betting. It's like the, the old law in Chester, isn't it? You can fire an arrow at somebody at midnight, you know, on the city walls if they're a Welshman or something like that. You know, so <laughs> these old ancient laws that kind of need to be uh, addressed as as, um, uh, as kind of the world evolves and, uh, you know, so whether or not, <laughs> you know, in this situation next year, you know, the host, host this event in Illinois, the bookmakers get together and say, let's help, let's help up the prize money for the 65th golfer. Um, so it covers, you know, like I say, the costs, but, um, yeah, it's a strange old situation um, with some of these rules where people it just it beggars belief how you know people can't uh, bet on their mobile in these states where it's legal and some of the different rules coming in and clearly the people making some of these decisions have no idea about betting whatsoever, and, sure. um, mm, uh, which we probably see across not just in the US, you know, we see in the UK or across Europe for some of these bookmakers they just have zero idea the the, the number crunches and they have no idea about betting. It'll be interesting when the um, US market opens up. It really will be just to sit back and watch it and uh, see if they've learned any lessons from from overseas. But just backpedaling a little bit. So your, your sort of business plan back in 2006, the idea was to really sort of review all of the people, the tipsters that are that are that are suggesting that they are winning long term um sort of tipsters uh, and to monitor them and to sort of cherry pick the most successful ones. Would that be fair and form a community around that? 
exactly right. Yes, I think at the time we, what got us onto this was we started to um, subscribe to a couple of the, it was postal uh, newsletters that were sent in the mail, you know, so you'd read like once a month a, a newsletter that reviewed tipsters and we kind of started to subscribe to a couple because we're interested in this topic and uh, we realized quite quickly that those services out there doing this kind of analysis were biased and they were promoting products which were flawed or they were ignoring the ones that were good. And it, it was basically the, you pay us, whoever pays the highest commission rate will get featured. You know, whoever strikes the, the cushiest deal for the, for the review site would, would kind of get the, the headline. Um, so it wasn't really focused on the, on the reader. It was focused on, on the, on the review service and how much money they could make. So that was it really. And I think back in the day we were, also more focused on review, you know, uncovering some of the, the scams at the time. There was a heck of a lot going on. Uh, so, you know, people used to advertise in some of the, you know, like the Racing Post and on all, this, all these kind of places and uh, do the, the premium phone lines. And um, there was there was a lot of a lot of issues there. So we kind of thought, well, we, you know, we will also uncover some, pick some of these and help people out by ignoring some of these quite obvious problems and quite obviously scam sites or scam services at the time. And it just evolved from there. So yeah, we've managed to find so many good ones. And as the internet age has evolved, and as it's become that much easier to set up a website and to process payments and to run a small online business, which may be focused on tipping, but we found I, I've you know, found so many good services that just deserve you know, a good amount of focus. And I think people are more tuned in. You know, with the internet, you can quickly search for uh, something that's clearly a scam and, and find out about it. A lot easier than you can do about the nuances of a good tipster. Did you ever get any um, any backlash from uncovering scams or sort of calling out people that were per perhaps hiding their losers and highlighting unrealistic ROIs? Yeah, you do. You do. I think early on we certainly did. We did get some backlash, and uh, as you can imagine, you're affecting people the, the income that they can make. So if you, if you're saying this this service is is, um, is just don't touch it with a barge pole uh, and then you're making a feature of that those people are going to be very unhappy about it because you're impacting how much money they make so so there was that balance between it yes and it was a concern at times you know in, in terms of someone going to knock on the door and <laughs> you know not be very happy but um, yeah uh, thankfully like I say we it's not really an issue these days so uh, don't have to worry too much about any any recriminations like that um, someone once told me that um, every single ROI graph or um, history of bets starts with an upswing. No one ever starts tracking their bets um, in the um, in the middle of a downswing. And I can see how that's easy to do, but how, were you, are you aware of that? And how how do you sort of um, manage looking at a set of results with a critical eye and sort of saying, you know, can I trust the information that I'm seeing in front of me here? Yeah, so beyond obviously like a visual look like that, you need, we do a lot of advanced analytics. So we get into like Monte Carlo simulations, p-values and things like that to kind of ascertain, you know, the, the, the quality of the data and if it's, if it's in any way manipulated. And then it also goes to the sample size of the data and the realistic nature of how it, how it appears. So if, and we also proof, so that's the key point, you know, I have real time evaluation of the service I'm reviewing. I've got those bets as they've come in ahead of the event taking place. And I can say, yeah, that's genuine or oh, they, they're putting in a bet there that one that I didn't receive. Why is that? That happens very rarely these days. And often it's a case of 
just poor administration where you know they've they've got a poor way that they distribute their bets or they're very scattergun with it so there's very little manipulation like that that goes on but certainly yeah you, you want to see a realistic set of results so if i see a straight line with no ups and downs in any way and um if I see um, a service that has not had a losing month, uh, you know, never suffered a losing couple of weeks, or just see the results seem too good to be true, and then then generally it is, and that's why effectively we don't we do less on our scams because it's more on the education, educating the customers, our members, to kind of what's realistic um, about the concepts of value betting and you know what you can realistically expect to make. So when something comes along that is unrealistic, they can quickly identify that and not not get caught out. One of the things I noticed when, um, well, cer- certainly this year, is bookmakers have been pushing different types of bets online. And one very common one amongst Skybet, William Hill, um, Betfred, uh, Paddy Power have been um, player shots on target. Um, and they've been boosted these prices. So um, I, I was following them. I followed them after lockdown um, just out of interest. I mean, it. it it's sort of cheating a little bit following boosted prices because you should always assume that if anything's boosted from X to Y, you're getting a little bit of an edge. And so naturally you could maybe blindly bet on those and turn a return on investment. But the first 71 bets um, that I tracked after lockdown, um, there were only four winners and um, it was 66 losers. You would be seriously in the red if you followed that. And I was sort of wondering, you know, could this be because they're simply boosting things to a still a negative equity price uh, and they're bad? Or could it be another reason? And if you did look into the data as it transpires after lockdown ended, uh, finished, there were so few goals and so few shots on target in the football games that um, possibly historically these were good prices, but something had fundamentally changed in the first month after lockdown where the players aren't fit and things like that. And this was a concept that was quite difficult for me to get my head around because you must come across people, tipsters and things like that, who are, who are long-term winners, but they start off like on quite a horrible downswing, which as horrible as it is, is just a natural repercussion of um, being a long-term winner. Um, Have you ever stuck with someone um, for a very long time, despite the fact you weren't quite seeing the profits that you were seeing? Oh, yeah, all the time, all the time, because it goes into the sample size and the length of time you follow them. So if people start with a losing one and they understand their method, then they, they as a, if you were a tipster and, and you start to get concerned after month one because you posted a loss and you start changing the strategy, clearly you didn't really know what you were doing in the first place and, you, and you're reacting to events. So if you're starting off and you're losing uh, and you are like, yeah, it's fine, this is there, I've seen this before, I've been doing this myself for several years and now I'm trying to sell the advice, then that's totally fine, it's part and parcel. So we see it all the time, especially with the quality you know, expert guys who, are, who know their stuff, who know what they're doing and know their, their edge, and uh, they're, they're, not, they're not flustered by it. They're like, yeah, that's fine, you know, next month or it'll kick in soon, this is variance, you know, we've had a whole bunch of horses that I've lost in a photo and I'm betting on the nose and I know we've got a low strike rate, but it will come good in time and it'll even out. And so, yes, we do see that and more than happy just to kind of go, right, well, you know, generally we don't review a tipster until we've got at least 12 months worth of data. And then it depends on the number of data points that we have and the profile of tips they're putting up, whether that's enough data to evaluate. 
So over the course of time, we see all those ups and downs play out. So we're not reviewing a service, kind of looking at it after three months saying, mm, we're not sure about this one, it's had a bad run. We're, we're kind of going in after two years saying, well, it started off badly, but look how it bounced back. And here's the average of what, what you can expect to return. You know, you might have to be patient. And that's certainly a reason we have where, you know, we might put a 12-month patience rating on a service because such is the way their service works that you might need to stick with it for 12 months if you join at the onset of a bad run to really kind of make a fine profit at the end of it. So, yeah, it's, it's never really concerned. It's more a concern if, if it starts reacting to a short-term run and panics and changes strategy because like, it indicates that they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, sure. So this is what I was going to ask about, that if you'd noticed common themes about uh, amongst winners and p- common themes amongst charlatans or losers. And that that's one of the things, really, that stands out for you, is that, you know, they'll, they'll start changing strategy, whether it's maybe, you know, staking more units or just completely moving away from what they were doing if they're losers and with the winners you trust the strategy yes exactly they keep a cool head that's a they, they keep emotionless and they, they keep disciplined and they know what they're doing they know their edge and that's definitely a you know a characteristic of a winning tipster winning better and i'm sure you know and members of your service will be aware you know that you have to not react to good and bad luck you know, if you're a golfer, he's back a golfer and he loses in a playoff, <laughs> you had him at 100 to 1. Um, you know, okay, that's, that's a tough, that's, that's unlucky and it's, it's annoying. But, you know, next time you might be on the guy that wins in the playoff and it all evens out, but you might have to wait three months. So, um, frustrating, certainly, but you keep a cool head and be disciplined and kind of detach yourself emotionally, which is difficult because bookmakers play on that emotion. You know, they play on the fact that, it, uh, winning is part of an ego trip. It's, 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 it goes to the quality of your your person, your, your expertise, your skill set. Um, it really, it doesn't. It's just luck and and, <laughs> and variance and understanding what, what a value betting opportunity is. So the more you kind of understand that and you can detach yourself and switch off from good luck, bad luck, the same, and treat it all um, treat it all as as one overarching uh, set of data then the, the easier it will become to, to bet on an ongoing basis it's so difficult to do though i think I, and one of the things i think i find definitely the hardest is if you did something that wrong or or um you miscalculated or you'd made some sort of lapse of judgment and then you win at the end of that to be able to critically look back and say i can't repeat that over and over again even though I've won money, if that makes sense, you know, it's a, yeah. it's a, bad, it's a bad idea. <laughs> it's, it's important to keep note of these things. And sometimes that's something I suggest to people is if you're feeling unlucky, you know, you've lost in a photo finish, you've lost in, you've, you've got a penalty go against you in the 95th minute. You know, just keep a log of the times when it goes the other way, because your mind seems to recall the bad beats a lot yeah. quicker than it, when it kind of, settles on the good the lucky lucky you know when the penalty went your way in the 95th minute so i always feel like keeping a log of that because you know this, your brain obviously only uh, it's got it focused on the short-term memory and you won't dig out what happened a month ago two months ago when you had a bit of stroke of luck so if you write it down and you have a log of it at the very least it has something to reflect upon so these are little tips and techniques certainly that can help better because like you say it's not easy it's not easy you know the the, the mental challenges of it are are, are, are substantial and if you go into it blind and think, oh, it's easy, I know more than a bookmaker and I can handle these losses, I'm going to watch every sport, I'm going to live every bet out as it, as it takes place, you may welcome the cropper. 
So you do this, the psychological aspect of being a punter that has an edge and wants to win is, is a challenge and it's something that is underestimated by many people. But those guys who are taking it seriously understand this and who have, you know, who are long in the tooth and have been betting for a long time understand these challenges and have techniques and, and ways and strategies for them to cope with it. So do you, do you have any sort of key psychological strategies or advice for beating the psychological part of the game. I, I certainly know some very clever people who haven't hacked it in the gambling world because the psychological impact of variants and losing runs just got the better of them, for example. Um, do, do, do you have any advice for sort of people dealing with that aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, I certainly there's, there's several things that we've got on site, but some of the things I would recommend are, first of all, it's understanding um, kind of your profile when it comes to risk and how that reflects on the, the betting strategy you have. So the old mantra of high risk, high reward is the same in betting as it is in stocks and shares or buying houses. So if you are a naturally cautious person and you're following something that's high risk, let's say you're betting on golf. Now golf is you know, has a high reward, but it's high risk in terms of you're backing people maybe at 50 to one, 100 to one, and they're not gonna win very often. So you have to, it's, it's, the rewards are there when they do win, but you know you could easily go on a long long road and have losers and have a and, and uh, enforced period of uh, variance that goes against you um and, and it's high risk like that so understanding that is crucial because you need to you need to build the strategies and the tips and the, and the ways you bet around your risk and your attitude to it uh but that, you know in terms of just some easier wins uh, i would say don't watch the events if you are not needing to watch the event to analyze it and to pick out your next bet, so if you're following the tips that's watching the races for you, you don't need to live out that race taking place every single time. Because if the best the best will in the world, I, I watch these races, my heart rate goes up, and I start getting interest, involved in the race, and I start getting excited. Oh, rather than actually seeing it at the end of the day, did it win, did it lose? <laughs> like lines in the spreadsheet of a profit or a loss. Okay, it lost. I had three big bets yesterday on the race, and all three lost in a photo finish. Now I just looked at it and went, "Oh, that's a pain," because I've had quite a few of those lately. Um, but I'm long enough in the tooth to know it'll even out in time. But if I hadn't watched every single one of them, and you know, I had some substantial winning winnings, you know, that I missed out on by the narrowest of margins, then that is really difficult, even for someone like myself who's been it a long time. So I, I advise that you know, don't don't live out. Um, don't live out the bets in, in real time because it does have an emotional impact on you no matter how experienced and how how strong-willed and, and <laughs> disciplined you are um, because uh, even 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 if you try as best you can it will still impact you and then it could the knock-on effect is how it affects the next lot of bets you take and the decisions you make subsequent to that Sure, yeah, and also the a quality of life thing, especially if you're betting on a lot. There's just so much sport on all of the time. You could argue, well, cricket's on now, and then the golf, there'll be football tonight, and the question is, when does it stop? When do you turn it off? And I, I like the idea that you're saying that you can sort of treat this like stocks and shares, and you don't have to follow the stocks and shares graphs 24 hours a day. You can walk away from the computer and come back to it. Exactly, and many people um, you know, who are... You start the investing stocks and shares or houses, you know, there's ups and downs, but the long term, the market always goes up. So if you're in it, generally, <laughs> if you invest in the right thing, um, it will go up. So you just have to, um, 
you know, just stick, stay in the game. You know, it's the time in the game, not your timing into it that matters when it comes to things like betting, uh, like anything. So, yeah, I, I agree. That's, um, that's an important thing to consider. You got me thinking there. One of the things I've sort of I've got used to doing over time, just because it makes me more comfortable, is that anytime I place a bet, I I make a note of it in a in the Evernote note system that I have on all of my devices. But I don't actually get around to logging whether any of the bets won or lost, except for once a week where I look back on it. But I I got around to feeling that instead of just doing it one bet at a time. It's so much better on my time, but also so much better on my mental health just to do it once a week, look back and say one lost, one lost. Okay, it evened itself out at the end. A mistake I made last week, um, I I went to Skybet to bet on Jason Day at 25 to 1. I accidentally clicked on Colin Morikawa and didn't notice (laughs) and then logged on. I logged on to my Skybet account. <laughs> what is going on? I'm not, I'm not entirely sure why my balance is at this amount, but uh, and I also I don't know what to think about that. I don't know. I, I, I like it's just something that happened. I'm neither proud that I won the money nor can I think of any lessons that need to be learned there. Um, but um, okay, so uh, the uh, you've been doing this for you said sixteen years 14 years so um sorry it's, it's been a long period of time to yeah. be sort of um monitoring how the industry has changed and things like that but um in 2020 i think most people would agree that we have this really bizarre um battle between being informed is easier than ever um and as a result bookmakers restrictions um, seem to be, well, maybe not the most severe they've ever been. Perhaps they hit a peak in 2015 or 16 or something like that. But it certainly doesn't seem to be the easiest thing in the world to bet at a bookmaker and to continue betting at a bookmaker. Um, can you remember back to 2006? Was it all, you know, you can have as much on anyone that you wanted and no one noticed? Or is that looking back at it with rose-tinted glasses on no, I think it was very much, much more like that. Uh, I was thinking about this earlier, and I remember we had a, a Ladbrokes account where we won five figures profit in one year betting on horses. And uh, I don't know how if anyone could do that now with, with Ladbrokes. I don't think so. Um, and that was part of the course. That was quite normal. And issues of getting on, on sports like horse racing, especially even if you were betting at 9, 10 in the morning, um, were not really a big deal. Um, most of the bookmakers were would accommodate you. Uh, yes, and there was the occasional letter you got through the post. That's, that's how they did it then, um, to say, we don't want your business. But you had to be winning substantial amounts and be consistent, consistently beating them to, to kind of get that. You know, So it was there, but not to the level it is now. And like you say, it, as, as bookmakers and the technology become more sophisticated and they've become more focused on you know their their profit margins. They've they've looked to eradicate more and more those punters that have a discernible edge. And um, you know this is the reality of it. You know I see we've talked about the American market before, and, and I see there's a lot of pushback from many of the punters and in in America complaining about the Europeans coming over with their models and complaining about limitations. But really, it's quite good there. <laughs> it's only going to get worse. You know, yeah. Look out. You know this is. This is the tip of the iceberg, and um, you, you're gonna when when they get really set up and they're all in place, like it's gonna 
they're going to crunch down on you even further. So if you're taking, if you're arbing, if you're doing anything like this, if you're a serial winner on markets that aren't particularly liquid, then yeah, they're going to cut you, and uh, you have to be aware of this. So uh, make hay while you can. And um, so it continues to be a big issue, and it's a problem that you know we do more. I, I look at it as um, it's a journey. So when you start off, you can obviously open bookmaker accounts, take advantage of match betting, and you know all the new account offers that come in. Uh, and then you go and you maybe you start betting on, start making some profit in some of the more niche markets. So I include horse racing in that with, with bookmakers and you start to make a bit of profit. But then you evolve, you start to move towards the exchanges and start to move towards sports where you have a lower ROI, but you can stake it a higher amount to make a, a good profit. So it's a kind of, a, for me, I see it as if, you, need, you know, there's a betting journey. It depends where you are as to where you bet and what you bet upon. Um, because eventually, yes, you're not going to be able to make consistent uh, high profits with some of the soft bookmakers uh, long term, unless you know you yeah, there's strategies and things you can do to kind of go under the radar for a certain period of time. So yeah. Yeah, I, I like the idea of a journey, and um, it, perhaps as an advantage player, the, the sort of pinnacle of your journey has to be where you're at a point where you're placing bets that the bookmaker thinks is long-term negative equity but in the grand scheme of things you are making money and that's a difficult balance to make it's a very difficult balance because you you know you're dealing with trading um departments and, and uh, they use all kinds of techniques you know they've got the uh iovation the cookie tracking the cookies that they place on your computer the tracking that they do uh, you know in terms of your ip address and a heck of a lot more so they profile you very much more than just the bets you place you know it's the devices you use. Uh, so for example, like one of the things that simply can help you is placing your bets on your mobile phone through the app. Because generally many professionals are kind of doing it on their laptop and they've got a spreadsheet open and they've got a staking calculator and they've got, you know, all kinds of odds checker open or whatever it might be. And they're, they're kind of, yeah, I'm gonna go into William Hill and place this bet. But then if you were to open your phone, place it through your place it through uh, the William Hill app on your phone and then do it um do it off a different uh, internet connection, so rather than on your Wi-Fi, which is linked to your laptop, but do it for your data connection, your, your 4G connection. It's simple things like that that can help you appear, you know, to be just a regular gambler making it striking, striking lucky. Um, so, yeah, so they're, they're the things that um, you, you can do because otherwise it, it does become very difficult to go under the radar. Sure. I, th I think for a long period of time as well, um, there was a lot of punters that got used to the idea that um, once you were restricted uh, at a few key bookmakers, you just shut down all of those accounts and open up your wife and your mum and your dad and your uncle and things like that. And my personal opinion is that that strategy cannot, especially as technology gets better, can't be a long term solution to the problem because technology gets better bookies get more intelligent there are services out there that know kind of who's betting on what accounts we're gonna have fingerprinting or face id at some point and um, I, um it's almost like if you want to get ahead of the curve you've got to start thinking right my name is tom brownlee i know for sure that there are a few bookmakers that are not going to take bets from me but i'm not therefore going to look at the ones that will and see you know how I can get my edges there uh, and sort of almost reverse the trend a little bit. Yeah, you, you do have to be, yes, yeah, so some bookmakers are going to cut you, you know, even within the space of a few bets, whether you win or lose of them, just because they, 
they see you not doing replacing bets in the casino or straight away you're not taking the ackers and they think i'm not bothered about you uh, it's the analogy of like a big fishing net going in uh, with bookmaker and they bring in customers their marketing and they bring in 100 fish and they only want 10 of them so they chuck the other 90 into the sea and, and <laughs> those yeah. customers are, are, are losing you know so uh, that winning, sorry, they, they just they just don't want. So some bookmakers aren't going to stand you, you know, with bet Fred or Sporting Bet, some of these smaller bookies and with a reputation for cuttings. Um, but uh, yeah, if you can find those that will be more reasonable, and they are out there, some of the larger bookmakers, you then just have to have the strategy of okay, if I start winning money, if I have that big lumpy bet on a golfer that win, uh, you know, suddenly my account's grown substantially. What do I then do? Do I then put in some some mug tactics? Do I then start and a few spins on the casino do i then not withdraw straight away but then chuck a few ackers on or just things that throw them off the scent um to think okay this guy's won five grand but look he's just stuck some of those winnings into this market and this market so clearly he's going to spend all of this money that he's won and we'll get it back in the end and that's where they look at it you know they if you withdraw that money straight away and then suddenly continue to bet shrewdly they think right this guy knows what he's doing he's not going to we're not gonna, he's not going to recycle that money with us. So it's definitely being shrewd about when you win bets and, and if you've taken top price, you know. So if you're if you're betting on a golfer and uh, he's 51, 50 to one across the market, but 365 are offering 60 to one, and you take that, then you have to be aware that they know that if they that bet wins, they're going to look at that and go, well, he took 60, and then we had to slash it, and then the guy went on to win, uh, and we were top price. So clearly, this is a price sensitive customer. Do we want to have him in? So. These are the things you, you need to consider when you're betting and you're trying to make good income from it is you have to be careful about you know, taking too much uh, of an edge or too often from the same bookmaker. Yeah, yeah. I 100% agree with that. I think it's the case that if you're going to do five golfers and two are top price over here and three are top price over here, just do all five at the same bookmaker. I mean, I, I know one of or a couple of them they're not going to be what you wanted, but that you, you've got to think about the longer game of what they're looking at there. And um, um, that's part of the game. And hopefully you're winning enough that you can just give that. It's all about giving just a little bit back to them to keep them sweet. And maybe you can just continue a little bit longer. But we get to this point in 2020. And who do you think is the better, or perhaps should I say, the worst behaved? Is it the punter, or is it the bookmaker, or is it a mixture of both in this environment that we have in the 2020? I, I certainly think it's the bookmaker that's the worst behaved. Um, but that doesn't mean that when punters badly behave and they take prices that are obviously wrong, uh, that that makes that, that's the correct thing to do. Um, so, you know, if you're taking a bet that's uh, entered it to be uh, six to one, and it's the, one with fat fingers has put it in at 60 and you take that then don't be surprised if the bookmaker says well that's not you know of course you you've taken that bet because you've seen we've made a mistake and you've taken it we're gonna we're gonna you know it's going to be scrapped and hey we're going to limit your account because you know the kind of customer we want well that's that's your own fault isn't it really I, I think you know there is an element of you have to you have to play fair because if you don't well it's not right for perhaps it's you know morally right it's up for a debate but Worst of all, you're going to get caught. You're going to bring yourself to their attention as someone they don't want, and that's that's the last thing you need. So, but definitely, I feel bookmakers are, are, are the the biggest problems here. You know, they they've got this um, heads I win, tails you lose kind of strategy at the moment, where they they will take uh, money from 
losing betters up to five times the maximum payout, but yet they'll restrict winning betters to 1%, and yet they, pre they preach uh, responsible gambling. Um, I, I, can't, I can't understand that. You know, to me, that's completely illogical and unfair. And the, the balance at the moment is too far in, in, in their direction. There needs to be some kind of some kind of resolve to that because um, resolution to that because you know it's it's not a sustainable strategy and, and it's encouraging problem gambling and uh, it's it's all skewed or uh, incorrectly and uh, just the greed of bookmakers uh, which is which is an, uh, allowing us to, and the, the light touch to regulation the regulators who don't want to get involved and make it a fair a fair market um, which is causing the problem so. Yeah, I have fought firmly on the side of, of bookmakers being at most, most uh, behind most of the problems in, in the current bookmaking setup. So, for example, let's say you put £100 on RB Leipzig to beat Atletico Madrid tonight. You put it on at 5-2, to two, and the bookmaker pays you because they win £250, uh, and they accidentally pay you twice uh, and give you another, sort of, well, including your stake, another £350. Do you turn around to them and say... Mr. Bookmaker, you've accidentally paid me twice. Here's your money back. You better take it. Or do you click that withdraw button and just say, you know, they deserve this because there's been shocking behavior towards the punters over time? It's a good question. You know, it goes to the morals and ethics of each better, doesn't it? Uh, you know, I'd say whatever you do, you have to be mindful of the fact that if you withdraw that money, they may well notice that a day later and then come, come calling for it or start raising problems. And then you're dealing with the legal department of a bookmaker and the teams of lawyers and the issues that you know the the strength that they can bring to bear upon you on that topic. So you know it all goes to each how, how you feel comfortable. Would I do it? I don't know. Uh, I, it's not, I've not had that situation play out unfortunately. But you know if I saw if I found you know someone's phone in the street, would I pick it up and take it and myself? No, I'd hand it in. So it all goes into you know um, to 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 the morals and ethics of, of each individual better on that front. And uh, it'd be nice that wouldn't it? It's like we you know someone. Someone asked the bank accidentally stick another fifty thousand pounds in your in your account one day by by accident. Um, yeah, so it'd be nice if I got a few uh, winning bets uh, settled in my favour a little bit more. Um, as I have to say it's happened to me twice, uh, and on one instant it was bet safe. I emailed them and I pointed out the error to them, and on the other instant it was William Hill and I took the money and the reason I took the money is that um, they'd palped a winning bet that was just not enough for me to fight through the courts um, uh, but I, I, I was 100% entitled to that money it wasn't um, it wasn't an unfair price it wasn't um, um, it, there wasn't anything wrong with it they had just decided that they, they didn't want to pay it out and so when they paid me twice on a bet I kept it so for me it was bookmaker dependent on my perspective and my historical dealings um, with them so um, just um, just finishing up here, um, 2006-2020 is obviously quite a long period of time, but we've had the strangest 2020 with lockdown, with sport going away, with um, um, a lot of you know historical trends sort of um, getting thrown out of the window. For you personally, how did you find your sports betting over the lockdown period and the reintroduction of sports since then? Personally, I just stopped betting during the lockdown period. Um, a lot of the sports, sport, everything that I was normally betting on was stopped, and I just didn't have, you know, the the, the tipsters, I suppose, or they announced to kind of get involved with the Belarusian league or Nicaraguan basketball, whatever it might have been. 
So just stop. So, and I think that the biggest issue has been the restart of sport because we've seen some crazy results. You mentioned before about the score lines in the football and goals, and similar across different sports. You know, um, I know in golf there's been it's been tricky at times to kind of you know, there's no form lines and what's the motivation for each golfer and uh, the fields are different and the setup is totally different. There's no crowds and it's the same for football and all these sports where. Uh, and horse racing, sorry, where there's no form to go on and, and you know, this un, unprecedented period. So subsequent to its return, it's been, there's been more variance, I would say. And, uh, you know, I, I bet at smaller stakes in June and then in July, I started to raise them again. But even then, it's still been up and down. And uh, we're still seeing, for me, into the middle of August now, I'm still seeing the knock-on effect of that um, in terms of some strange results and it's not quite kicking in as it would normally at this time of year or not seeing the more settled performance levels that I would normally get. Um, so I'm hoping that there isn't a second lockdown for so many reasons, but one of them being, uh, you know, if the sport is there's this hiatus again, how it impacts us in terms of uh, how we bet and the variance that we suffer. So it's been a it's been a challenging year, you know, and it, it, if you look at, say, football betting, many of the experts at that uh, you know we kind of focus and review on it. They don't get involved too often early on in the season because there's no form lines to go on. So maybe they'll wait for, especially the stats-based ones, because they're waiting for some stats to come through and they're betting blindly without them. Uh, and it's a similar here. You know, there's no real recent form to go on. It's like you've had preseason, but how much does that count? Um, so there's a logic to why people you know, take time to kind of view. How the sport is taking, how the sport is unfolding prior after it restarts after a break, um, and and taking being very cautious at that point. So I do think now it's coming a bit easier as we're kind of two and a half months in, but it's still not right. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting how that all unravels. And you're right there. I think a second lockdown period is really going to shake things up and definitely not for the better as well. So fingers crossed that um, we can sort of pull through this and get back to some sense of normality. So. Um, that's about 40 minutes up. Uh, listen, Pete, if people want to go and find out about your service and want to go and check out what you're all about, it's all very interesting sort of um, reviewing and ranking these um, long-term winning tipsters. Um, how do they How do they find you? Yeah, so you can read more about the service at smart, smartbettingclub.com. And there's all kinds of information on there. There's a blog with a whole bunch of articles and informative pieces. Um, and if you have any questions, you know, we invite people to contact me. I'm always always available to discuss things. Um, so my email is pete at smartbettingclub.com or we're also active on Twitter, which is at SBC Info. So yeah, feel free to get in touch whether you want to join the service, you've got questions about your betting strategy, whatever it might be, I'm always happy to help out people who have a betting query. So on Twitter, that's at SBC Info, is that right? Yeah. That's right, yeah. Okay, and we're just going to finish off just with a quick game. Um, uh, uh, you're the first to play it, so when you go onto the leaderboard, you will be ranked number one, but the, um, the next guest on the uh, Bashcast is going to be able to challenge you for your position. Uh, you have exactly 60 seconds from when I say go to name as many European cities beginning with the letter B. That's B for... Uh, um beautiful as you can you get double points if they are capital cities uh do you understand the game i do i do okay <laughs> no prep on this i'm just going to tell everyone no warning <laughs> uh three two one you've got one minute from now okay berlin bordeaux barcelona 
spirits. Um, this is probably people listening to this think, come on. Um, let me think, let's go through England, Birmingham. Um, missing some obvious ones, probably, aren't I? Uh, into Spain. Uh, I've said Barcelona, haven't I? Um, I've said Barcelona. Oh, three seconds left. Okay, so let's go to Holland. Anywhere. Uh, Belarus, not the country. Um, you can't have Belarus. <laughs> I think of capital cities and football teams now. Um, Three, two, one. That is your time up. You got um, Berlin, Bordeaux, Barcelona, Biarritz, and Birmingham. Berlin being the capital of Germany gets you double points there. At the other four, no capitals, is a grand total of six points. And that puts you at number one in the leaderboard. Work <laughs> Thank you. For that Not so long. <laughs> Listen, uh, really good speaking to you and uh, hope to catch up soon. Okay, thanks, Doc. I'm